Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. This is J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions, Career Lessons. This is a newish podcast series. It's one I've wanted to do for some time. Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some of us, our careers are like rocket launches. For the rest of us, our stories are more like a game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we all learn countless lessons during our career. And my goal with this podcast is to bring on a variety of guests who will share their stories and their learnings. This podcast is part of a broader investment that I and others are making in career development, primarily through a company called Pathwise.io, which was started with the belief that we all need to own our own careers, but that most of us struggle with how best to do that. And what Pathwise is really about is aiming to provide comprehensive career and professional development events and insights and tools and exercises all backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts to help you really take control of your career. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Jason Krantz, who I've known since we both worked together at McKinsey back in the late 1990s. Jason is the founder and CEO of Definitive Healthcare, a provider of data and analytics to healthcare providers, biopharma firms, medical device manufacturers, among others. He founded Definitive Healthcare 10 years ago, and in September, it IPO'd on the NASDAQ exchange. It expects to finish 2021 with revenue of over $160 million and currently has a market cap of about $4.7 billion and roughly 550 employees. Jason's a serial entrepreneur, started his first company, Infinata, another provider of market intelligence to the pharma industry, while he was a second-year student at Harvard Business School. Along with Infinata and Definitive Health, he was also a founding investor in two other companies, Energy Acuity and Extelligent both of which have since been sold, and he was on the board of Ranking, which was also sold. So Jason has an accomplished and enviable 20-plus year track record of success as both an entrepreneur and an investor. Jason, welcome. Great to have you. Thanks. Great to be here. So first, congratulations on Definitive's IPO. That's a milestone to which a lot of entrepreneurs aspire. You've been at it for 10 years leading up to that moment. That must have felt like a huge accomplishment for you and your team. Yeah, you know, it, it was pretty surreal, really. If you would have asked me 10 years ago when I started Definitive Healthcare, whether we would ever go public, I would have you know, said absolutely no chance. And I would have said that two years ago as well. So it was a pretty surreal moment, but something that every entrepreneur, you know, in their wildest dreams would love to aspire to. What drove the decision this year? Was it just markets up, market timing, or was there something more specific to what you guys were doing, your own situation? Well, there's a huge amount of advantages to being public that we're seeing. You know, I think two big ones for us, obviously, access to capital. To the, so to the extent that we want to be opportunistic with acquisitions, you know, it's good to have access to that capital. But we're finding a real opportunity for hiring great talent. It's a real motivator for people to come in. It raises the visibility of the company overall. So it was great for business. And obviously, you know, market timing was conducive to having a proper IPO. 
Yeah, it's certainly it's a huge seal of approval in terms of how the markets look at you, how financiers look at you, how you know potential employees look at you when you become that public company. So what was it like to go through that process? You know, I mean, it's a I know just the, the filing and the roadshow and, you know, lining up the bankers and all of that. How was that experience for you guys? Yeah, it was busy. So there's a lot more moving parts than I would have ever expected. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of work just setting the organization up to be a public company, financial work and processes and compliance, all really important stuff that I actually think will pay off as a company long term. But it's a lot of work to get there. And we did it on a pretty short time frame. But it was exhilarating along the way. You're doing road shows and you're talking to investors all the time. And, and it's exciting and it's high stakes. You know, I think it sums up as I think about the, the experience overall. There was a moment, the day of the IPO, you go up and you give a little bit of a speech before you ring the bell. And I tend to not get nervous at all talking to big crowds, all my employees, whatever. Public speaking does not bother me. I've never been more nervous in my life to get yeah. a 10 speed. And I think that that sums up the whole year and the experience. There was so much work getting to that point. Well, that ringing the bell moment. I mean, so many people would love to be up, you know, in that kind of position where you you hit that milestone and you get to ring the bell at NASDAQ or or the New York Stock Exchange. I mean, it's just such a, you know, a key, it's sort of a keystone moment, if you will. It was pretty special. And we had 50 employees up from all different parts of the company. Nice. My family was there. You know, it's a lot of the board is there. Just a lot of people that have been along for the journey that it was great to experience that with them. Yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. So go back to the beginning. What led you to start Definitive in the first place? And how did it kind of build on your early experience with Infinata? Yeah. So my first company, Infinata, which I started back in 2000, was a similar company. We provided a subscription service accessing data on every clinical trial and investigational drug globally. When I sold that in 2007 and spent a few years transitioning to the new owner, I was looking around for my next data business. Love data businesses. They're highly scalable. You get to solve interesting problems that can have a meaningful impact on the world. And I looked at a variety of different industries, but I kept coming back to healthcare. And healthcare is just a great industry to have a data business in because it's huge, first of all. It's almost 20% of our GDP. It's highly complex. So you have all of these different constituencies that want something different out of the market. So in order to sell and understand and compete in the healthcare market, you need to understand the whole ecosystem. So personally, I like solving difficult problems and I like Mm. helping transform an industry that frankly has some challenges. So it was just the perfect industry for us to go start attacking. How did you approach, we're going to go back to Infinata at some point here, but how did you approach the second startup? What was similar and what was different? You know, certainly you had a lot more experience under your belt at that point. Yeah, I was definitely able to shortcut a lot of things. So, you know, going through my first business, you make a lot of mistakes along the way. And as you start your second one, you're able to avoid a lot of those things. You you quickly figure out where to focus your attention and what is noise. And when you're starting a company up and you have limited people and limited resources to work with, having that very singular focus on what's most important really pays off as you're trying to build a business. How early in the process did you decide to raise venture funding for Definitive? So for Definitive, so I had an exit before. So I actually self-financed the company until 2015. 
at which point we brought on our first institutional investor, Spectrum okay. Equity. And it's really a decision of we had gotten to the point where we were a certain size. I wanted to take it to the next level. I wanted to become a $100 million company at that point and having access to more capital, as well as the strategic vision that these types of organizations can help bring to the table about how to scale and what it takes to get there. It was the right time for us as a company. How did you choose the venture partners that you picked? Obviously, as you mentioned, it was five years in, four or five years in. You'd been at it for a while and financed it yourself. You know, what were you really looking for from a venture partner at that point? Yeah, see, I think I've been very careful to choose venture partners and I've had amazing experience. So, you know, we've now got three institutional investors, Spectrum Equity, well, before the IPO anyway, Spectrum Equity, 22C and Advent International. They've all been spectacular partners. What I look for is obviously they need to understand my space and they need to bring all of those skills together in order to help me get, you know, scale the business and get to the next level. But there's a lot of companies that can do that. And there's a lot of capital. Capital is the easy part. So what I really look for when I think about my institutional partners is who has alignment on what I'm trying to accomplish? Who do I trust as people? And who do I want to sit in the boardroom with and have discussions where you don't need to hide anything? You can be very open about the opportunities as well as the challenges of the business and feel like you have a partner that can help you take to the next level. So, you know, doing a lot of CEO references, other companies that they've invested in, all of that was very important to me as I was thinking about, you know, who is going to be my partner? Who's going to be by my side as we continue to grow this business? You've worked with venture capital firms a, a few times in your career. What advice do you have for newer entrepreneurs in terms of developing a constructive working relationship with them? Yeah. So once you pick the right partner, obviously that's the most important thing is find somebody that you're comfortable with. But I think once they become part of your business, my advice is they want to help. And maybe more importantly, they're going to help. So I think it's important to start to establish what are the best ways that they can be helpful to the organization. So where can they really lean in and put forth effort in areas where maybe you have a weakness or you just have less resources? So, for example, with Definitive Healthcare, our partners have been amazing in helping us access the capital markets. They have both from a debt standpoint, as well as obviously during the IPO process, they have fantastic contacts there. They've done a million of these types of deals. That's been incredibly helpful. The other area that I've seen a huge amount of benefit is accessing their networks. These companies, especially the bigger ones, are you know have six degrees of Kevin Bacon with essentially everybody. So if you want to talk to a CEO or talk to somebody that you think could be helpful for a partnership or for advice, I've found that that is a great place to lean in with them. When did you first realize that? Definitive was had the potential to be on a bigger trajectory than Infinata. So the truth of Definitive Healthcare is when I started it, it was supposed to be a lifestyle business. <laughs> five to ten employees, and you know, it, it would be keep me busy, make some money. That was the original plan. And then there was a moment, geez, probably about two years in, where we just started adding sales reps and we realized very quickly that I didn't need to be involved in deals anymore in order to get them done. And yeah. that was the moment where I said, wow, this is a really big market, a highly scalable product that we've built where we have, we have something new and disruptive that nobody has seen before. 
and it demos very well. People understand instantly the ROI that they can get from it. And then it was about, all right, how do we just start scaling this quickly? And, you know, how do we make sure that we build a fantastic commercial organization to take advantage of that? That was when it clicked, right? It said, boy, this thing can scale far beyond what Infinata did. Yeah, interesting. And you talked about the fact that you didn't need to be personally involved in the sales process anymore. What, I mean, a, a lot of companies, you know, and founders go through that period where they hit another level of size and they have to manage differently. What, what else did you need to do to help the company scale? What did you have to keep doing and what did you have to do, have to do differently? That moment was probably the hardest moment in definitive healthcare. So I mm-hmm. found that at about 100 employees is at 100 employees, I was involved in every single decision, everything that happened at the company of any importance. And at that point, I realized that if we were going to continue to get to the next level, I needed to give up that control, which is very difficult for founders to do. And absolutely, uh, I started, you know, trusting that my executive team started to trust them and say, look, let's sit down and let's set forth a shared vision of what we're trying to accomplish. Let's set very clear KPIs and make sure that, and I'm giving you the accountability. So I'm giving you the freedom to run this how you want, as long as we're going along with these KPIs and this this vision of where we're, where we're trying to head as a company. And that was difficult. And it took a lot of willpower and a lot of trial and error to figure out how do I give up that control. And what I've found is that, you know, at about, then we got to 125 employees and I thought I had it all figured out. I was like, all right. I've given up that control. This is great. It's working. We're going to get to the next level. Then you had 200 employees. And now those people that you just gave up all that control to need to do the same thing to the people. <laughs> yeah. So it goes on and on. But I think that is, that's one of the hardest things about scaling is, is building the organization for scale. And that means I can't be involved in everything. And that's uncomfortable yeah. at first, but but once you do it and you figure it out, it's also one of the most rewarding parts about growing a company. Yeah. I read a book by Larry Bossidy way back in the day, and it still sticks with me. He was the CEO of Allied Signal for many years. And he said the role of a leader is ultimately to do three things, to set direction, to manage the talent, and to organize the management processes of the company. And if you think about it, it's a really simple message, and it, it scales, right? Because if you you know, if you've got the right people and you've got the right direction and you've got the right processes in place on a day-to-day basis, you don't have to be involved in everything anymore. But I think a, a lot of people, whether they're entrepreneurs or whether they're sort of managers of small groups that are all of a sudden pressed into something bigger, they struggle with that that letting go factor and realizing that what they need to do is kind of orchestrate, you know, more than actually do. That's right. And I still struggle with it. It's difficult. <laughs> Yeah, we all do. You know, we all have a little bit of the doer in us and, you know, that wants to just kind of dive in and, you know, be in the weeds because it's fun and, you know, be in the thick of it and be the hero and all of that. So, Absolutely. so you grew up in Wisconsin. I did. We're going to do the requisite Green Bay Packers shout out. I think that would be nice. You know, go Badgers, go Packers. All right. There you go. So did you see yourself being an entrepreneur when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad was a small business owner, which I think you start to see that and you see a lot of the benefits that go along with that. My first job, actually, I was 12 years old. I started mowing lawns. And what I quickly realized is I could actually make a lot more money if I didn't mow lawns myself. So I started getting friends and I would I would get the job and friends and mow lawn at an hourly rate and I would make the money, the difference from that. So I think it's been in my blood since the beginning that I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. 
Okay, well, that's where you and I differ. I mowed lawns too. I think I started when I was 11. I, I was miserable doing it at first because the lawnmower, I was a small kid, the lawnmower was just hard to push around. And I never got to the point of being smart enough to hire other kids to do the work. I just kept doing it all the way through high school until I went off to college. So you went to BC. Did BC prepare you for what you've done since then? I think it, it gave the foundation for sure. So my major's at Boston College. I was a double major in finance and computer science. I'm not a developer. I'm not a coder. But the skills you get from a computer science degree are pretty amazing. Just, just to be able to sort of be dangerous enough to understand how it works and understand technology. And back then, I was class of 95 at Boston College. Technology was far less mainstream than it is today. So we didn't have our own computers for starters. So you would borrow computers from the school. And I remember it was Higgins Hall at Boston College. There was a small computer science room in the basement of the furthest building away from anything. So it had no prominence. There was, you know, 12 people in this program overall. So I'd be down there, you know, at two in the morning, uh, trying to figure out code, trying to get help from people that actually knew what they were doing. But it it does provide a great foundation to understand the logic and the analytics. And of course, finance is is a good background to start a company. So then you went to McKinsey, sort of classic post-college choice. What led you to consulting? Um, What other options were you thinking about? I was really deciding between consulting and investment banking. I think the benefits of both of those jobs are... You get exposed to a lot of really smart people, CEOs you get exposed to. You're, you need to learn communication skills. You need to learn analytical skills. You also get exposed to a lot of industries. And I think that's a, a real benefit as you're coming out of college. So McKinsey, you know, as I think about how that prepared me for building definitive healthcare, you know, when you're a McKinsey analyst, you spend a lot of time analyzing data, a lot of late nights. Back then, we used things like Microsoft Access and Programs that hardly are used for data analytics today, but that's what we're using to crunch huge amounts of data and figure out how do you codify this into something that people can use to make decisions every day. And that's really what the businesses I've built are all about, is taking huge amounts of information, providing, putting data science on top of it, creating new insights and analytics so people can make decisions to grow their business more quickly. Great. And then off to Harvard Business School, for you, how did you think about the decision to attend business school, invest the time and money to get an MBA? Yeah, I probably was not nearly as thoughtful about it as I should have been given you know how expensive MBAs are, but it was just something I was going to do. So I don't know that I put a lot of thought into it. You know, getting into Harvard too was, you know, something that that I wasn't expecting, I guess. So that was that was something that absolutely once I get in, I had to go do that. Yeah, it's a hard name to turn down, that's for sure. So what possessed you in your second year at Harvard that you could sort of start your own company? What what gave you the confidence, conviction to do that? Well, it was 2000 at the time. And 2000, the year 2000 might have been the craziest year ever. That was the beginning of dot-com, as you know. I think in my class at HBS, either everybody had a startup idea or they were going to join a small startup that was going to be the next, you know, Amazon, as it would turn out. People were turning away the jobs from Goldman Sachs, just from right. McKinsey. That was not interesting. It was all about startups. So I always wanted to start my own business. I got caught up in this, you know, came up with an idea of how can we take data from our clients and do 
you know, do the type of analytics that you would do at a McKinsey or at a bank and create a software package to allow people to make decisions. So I just set off to start doing it. It was a fortunate time. People were willing to make bets on, you know, very young companies and very young entrepreneurs in this case. So I raised a seed round of financing and signed up our first six-figure client before I graduated. And wow. at that point, it was like, this is what I'm going to go do. Yeah. Well, if you can make that bunch of progress before you're even out of school, that's that's pretty awesome. Looking back, you know, a lot of first-time entrepreneurs make a lot of mistakes. What, what were the mistakes that you look back and sort of chuckle about now? So many mistakes. So <laughs> 2000 was probably the single best year to ever start a company followed by probably the four worst years ever to try to build a company. So True. Collapse. At the time, the mantra was, how do you give big fast? And it was funny because nobody made money in dot-com companies back then. But so the metric became, how many employees can you have? And, you know, do the math, no revenues, lots of employees. It doesn't work very well. What's financial? Not for track. long. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So the mistake that I initially made was, we started hiring people, including people that were just not mission critical to what we were trying to accomplish. You know, we should have focused on all of our efforts on how do we make a great product that we can actually sell tomorrow versus trying to build infrastructure that you might need if you become a 200 person company. So we were just, we skipped a few steps along the way, but it was also, it was the time when I learned more than I've ever learned. We ended up, we, we couldn't raise any more financing. The Series A just dried up entirely yeah. in 2001. So we bootstrapped the company over the next seven years, never raised any more financing, and essentially figured out how to make money the old-fashioned way, which is, you know, have more revenue than expenses. And that, that lesson that I learned has paid off, you know, many times over, over the next 20 years. There were some dark days. I can imagine. I think every small company goes through those dark days and... Every founder goes through those periods of questioning whether they're, you know, throwing away their life on something that's never going to go anywhere. Obviously, um, you were sort of starting a family in that time period as well, right? So how did, you know, it's a grueling existence. How did, how did you make that balance work for yourself and for your family? Uh, well, I had an amazing wife who, you know, took on a fair amount of burden of all of that, which I appreciate greatly. But we, you know, I tried, I tried to keep stuff in perspective. So it was... You know, I, I try to come home at a normal hour, 5, 5.30, whatever it might be, spend time with the kids. Luckily, young kids tend to go to bed early. And then I would, if I had work to do, I would do it well into the night. So it was, how do you manage around and just take a lot of the pain on yourself and make sure that it doesn't impact the family? But I do remember my wife teases me still. There, there was a moment where I got into bed at like, I don't know, nine or something. I was tired and I had a book and within a minute, my face was down in the book, dead asleep. So, yeah. you know, all about how, how do you kind of manage manage family and keep it in perspective because business yeah. is important. I love what I do, but family's more important. Yeah, absolutely. So what you sold, you mentioned you sold Infinata in 2007. So what drove that decision process at the time? Yeah, it was just time. We were... We were still growing at a pretty fast rate. I think we were growing 30 to 40% per year. It was a much smaller company than Definitive Healthcare. But I think for us to get to the next level, we really needed to be associated with a bigger organization, with a larger commercial sales force. Uh, that product was a bit more of a tuck-in product than sort of a big business in its own right. 
so that that was really the time. I think you know people were people were tired. It was it was some hard years, as I mentioned. You know, oh yeah, or so as the market was kind of heating two thousand and seven. You know, it was the right to monetize for our investors and for the founders. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously you guys did did well, you know, getting out when you did. You sort of avoided the economic crisis that followed in the year after that. You then kind of shifted gears, right? I know you said, you know, you started definitive with the idea that it was going to be a lifestyle business. You were doing some investing at the time. How did your work, prior work as a as an entrepreneur translate into helping you as an investor in the roles that you played with Extelligent and Energy Acuity? Yeah, I think a couple of things. So first of all, those were both highly data-oriented businesses. So a lot of my experience in how to build a data-oriented business, a media business, you know, came to fruition there. But a lot of it is working with the CEOs that started those businesses, the founders, working with them and, and helping them figure out where to spend their time and helping them believe that you can go make this into a company and there's, there's a path to get there and you, you need to follow that path. You need to trust that path it's hard starting a company. A lot of things go wrong and you have to really believe that things are going to go in the right direction. Otherwise you give up. So spend a lot of time with them and, you know, sharing stories of what I found when I was trying to start the company and some roadblocks that I had and just helping them avoid those roadblocks as they were building the company, I think was really helpful to grow those companies quickly. Great. So I'm going to fast forward to today. You know, and a lot of people tell me that they haven't really still figured out what they want to do with their professional lives. It sounds like, sounds like if I go back to Jason Krantz's landscaping service in your teenage years, you know, you, you had that entrepreneurial dream from early on, and it was really just a matter of figuring out what it was going to be for, right? Or, you know, what the particular direction is. Do, do you still feel like you've had that strong sense of what you wanted to do all the way through, or have you questioned it along the way? No, I've, I've, I've loved what I've done. So, I love being an entrepreneur. I think uh, I'm forged back when, you know, when I was in Boston College, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I had no idea what it would be. And, and the world has changed a tremendous amount. But this is just a perfect niche for me. I love technology. I love to figure out how to apply technology in useful ways. I love data and analytics, you know, both of my first business in pharmaceuticals as well as definitive healthcare. It's just, it's an important spot where you feel you can have impact beyond just creating a business. So, you know, I've certainly never looked back uh, at this point. Yeah, good. That's good. You know, it's great to have had that strong sense of purpose and clarity all the way through. And most people can say that. Who do you think's really helped you the most along the way? You know, when you look back and think, you know, here's three or four, five people, you don't necessarily have to name names, but it'd be great just to get a sense of, you know, what is it? How did they help you? you know, develop as a person, as a professional along the course of your career so far? Yeah, I'd point to a few people. My father's been a big influence on me from a business standpoint, for sure. Just an incredibly pragmatic person, which you need to be as an entrepreneur, as well as a believer in me and, you know, always kind of pro, pro take a risk, right? If you believe in something, just go do it, right? Don't look back or don't question your decision. So he's been an important influence. My, my wife's been a huge influence, both in terms of providing me the freedom to do this type of thing, as well as, again, just being that, that believer and that support system when things go sideways, which they ultimately do. And I would say the, the other is, you know, the almost 700 employees of Definitive Healthcare. And that sounds hokey on it, but 
the amount that I've learned from these employees over time is remarkable. And once I got to that point where you start giving up control and people start doing stuff on their own, that's the point when you start learning, you're saying, wow, that is, that's something remarkable. I would have not thought of that on my own. And you start applying that to other parts of your business. And that, you know, I, I learn from them every day and lucky to work with the great people that are around me. Yeah, you're raising what I feel is a really important point and distinguishes people who are stronger leaders from people who are less strong. You know, they realize they don't have to have all the answers and that they can learn from people around them. You know, I, I've seen some people, I can remember having a personal experience working alongside a 16 year old, you know, setting up a uh, something that my son was doing. And she was so awesome, you know, working the front desk of this particular event that my son was doing. I would never have been able to do it as well as she did. And I was probably 45 at the time, you know, and she's gone on to do some interesting things, even in the early part of her career. And, you know, you just realize that like everybody's got their strengths and, you know, what your strength needs to be is figuring out what those strengths are and getting as much out of them as possible. That's right. Did any particular values kind of shape the way that you've, you know, I mean, you've talked about the influence of your father, obviously, but anything else really sort of shape how you've carried out your professional life? Say a few, I guess, values or traits might be uh, the right word for it. I think, you know, from a values standpoint, I've always tried to treat everybody around me how I've wanted to, I would want to be treated. So I've approached everything with trying to be transparent, trying to be upfront. I don't try to, I'm not the type of person that's going to go look at technicalities and legal documents to try to gotcha people. I want to go yeah. in, make good deals that everybody wins in. I want my employees to win. I want them to feel good about what they're doing. And I think, you know, there's that, that just pays off over time. You build up a huge amount of trust, trust capital with employees, with partners, with customers. Uh, that pays off. So focused on that, you know, from a trade standpoint, I think it's never, never playing out of a position of fear, I mm. think is really important, especially as you're starting up a company. If you're just worried about what can go wrong, you'll never do anything. You'll never accomplish anything. Uh, For me, like, you know, failing and making quick decisions quick and taking risks and having that not always work out is fine. I'm okay with that. I'd rather be running downhill at all times. Sometimes you fall and skin your knee a little bit, but you still get to where you're going to go much quicker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there is something people say about entrepreneurs, which is an element of hope that has to run through their blood. Because as you say, if you, if fear is running through your blood, you'll just stop and you'll go do something safer. My brother and I call it irrational confidence. Irrational confidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's true or irrational something. Yeah. Yeah. What career lessons would you share with people who are watching or listening today? Yeah, I guess a few things. Do what you love, first and foremost. You work, you know, geez, a huge amount of hours of your life. If you're not enjoying it, go do something else. I imagine the people that are listening to this podcast are, you know, go-getters, and they're people that have a good marketability out there. It's a great job market. There's people looking for great people like yourself. So go do something that you love. And I guess going along with that is take risks. And that doesn't have to mean starting your own business, but you know, figure out ways to go out of your comfort zone and do things that that maybe seem a little bit scary at first. I think that's just, it's more enjoyable. I think if you're trying to progress your career, you need to take those risks. So, you know, those are some of the things that I think are important. Yeah, you know, your first point, it amazes me every day 
you know, as we continue to find our way through the pandemic, that the job market is so favorable to the employee at the moment. I mean, it's just, it's crazy that we've gotten ourselves here. Obviously, a good time to be an employee, a tougher time to be an employer. How are you guys managed that? Just out of curiosity, you know, do you, are you having, do you see challenges in hiring and retaining people or as a sort of growing company in a hot space? Have you been relatively buffered from that? It is the tightest job market I've ever seen by far, you know, full stop. We have managed pretty well, though. We've historically had incredibly low attrition and we've had a small uptick this year, but not too much. So the things that have been key for us is we've got a great culture. So people want to be here. They want to, they make good friends. We have good life, uh, work-life balances. People, we're working on interesting problems. So they, they want to be part of this company. We give back to the community a lot, which people find important. So we try to focus on a lot of things that are beyond just the paycheck that you get. So I think that's the biggest thing overall is just how, how do you focus on that culture and making sure that people want to be here. And then the second is the growth. So we promoted, we have 700 employees almost, we promoted over 100 this year. So if you want to continue to grow yourself as a person and grow within your career, you might as well be at a fast-growing company because that's where you get the growth opportunities. Yeah, wow. So you guys have grown a lot even, I said, 550 earlier. So you've you've grown significantly since, uh, I think, what was in your public filings. That's amazing. Yeah, and obviously growth creates opportunities for people. You know, a lot of the time, people leave it's you know it's either because they just don't like the environment they're in sounds like you guys have created a strong culture or because they just they don't see an opportunity for growth and you know to me this is one of the big advantages of being in a in a growing business is you you do create career advance advancement opportunities for people that they're not going to have in a company that's that's not growing any books any podcasts that you listen to or books that you read that you would recommend so I'm a biography guy, but you know I like the old school biographies for the most part. So I've read like Carnegie, Rockefeller. I like those biographies. I like the Founding Fathers biographies. So the Adams biography is fantastic. There's a Washington biography that's great. I've read some of the newer ones. I've read a you know Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, Gates biographies. So kind of these yeah. big characters. I just find it interesting. There's a lot to learn from their lives. I just find them interesting characters in general. So you get somewhere between a story and something you actually get value out of. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure some of it is, uh, you know, expanded upon for purposes of the book, but still there's always, there's always some good lessons in there and things from, as you say, from history that still apply very well today, you know, and marry up against uh, more of the contemporary learnings. Any final thoughts before we wrap? No, this has been great. Really appreciate the time. Good luck to all the listeners, you know, go get it. Awesome. I appreciate that. Well, that wraps up this third episode of Career Sessions, Career Lessons. I'd like to thank my friend and guest, Jason Krantz, for joining me today and sharing his awesome entrepreneurial career story and learnings. If you aspire to do something more or just something different in your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like regular career insights, you can sign up on the website for the newsletter. You can follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Jason, again, thanks. And have a good day. Goodbye, everybody. Take care. You got it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. 
we provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.